From Advisory Board, we are bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. Today, I wanted to bring you a conversation with an agency that typically keeps things a little bit close to the chest. I sat down with Liz Fowler, the director of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, or CMMI. We talked about a lot of the success of the last decade of innovation, and frankly, where the agency has fallen short to date. But most importantly, I want you to listen for what Liz and her colleagues are thinking about for the next decade of innovation. Welcome, Liz, to Radio Advisory. Thanks, Ray, and I'm so happy to be here. Do you ever go by Elizabeth, or do you just go by Liz? I go by Liz. Does anybody call you Elizabeth? My mother, but only when I'm in trouble. Okay. I'm clearly asking because, right, my name is Rachel, and everyone professionally now calls me Ray, but I have this existential crisis because I truly go by both names, and I clearly could, I just couldn't pick Elaine, (laughs) which is why I always introduce myself as both. So I wasn't sure if you fell into the same boat. Well, it turns out there's another Elizabeth Fowler at HHS who is leading the Indian Health Service. And Ah. so it's critical that I go by Liz, and I believe she's going by Elizabeth. Lots of confusion on emails, as you can imagine. I want to start with your honest opinion. There's been a lot of change in healthcare over the last decade, but tell me honestly, has healthcare changed and transformed as much as you thought it would, or maybe as much as you hoped it would? Looking back, remember that the CMS Innovation Center was part of the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. And the Affordable Care Act, I think the coverage pieces, we got a lot of expanded coverage, which was really important. On the delivery system reform side, I think maybe not as much has changed as as we had intended. I think we thought we'd be a lot further along from the perspective of the Innovation Center. Really, after launching more than 50 alternative payment models, really only a handful of those models generated the savings that was required to be expanded under the statutory framework. That's right. It's a marathon, not a sprint, I guess. And I think this is one of the reasons why we're actually sitting down having this conversation, right? Because you and your colleagues are kind of coming at innovation through CMS with fresh eyes, and you co-authored a piece that took an honest look at some of the successes, but also a lot of the challenges that have remained over the last decade. And one of the first things that you point out is that models to date maybe weren't actually centered in equity. So to start, what are some of your plans to make sure that you're encouraging a more diverse set of providers actually participates in these alternative payment models? It's a really critical question because it's such a priority for this administration. And so it's really important that we get this right. So we're looking at embedding equity into all aspects of our models in Mm -hmm. terms of model developments, who's coming to the table, who's participating, making sure that we have safety net, rural providers, that we're not disadvantaging some of those that haven't come in in the past. We're looking at what beneficiaries they serve, even if they're sort of broader model participants, are they enrolling beneficiaries in all parts of in all parts of the country, or you know, is their selection area broad enough to encompass underserved populations? And then we're making sure that we have the data and 
asking the right questions, for example, on social determinants of health, hmm. that we'd be able to evaluate whether we're actually making a difference in health equity. So those are some of the some of the ways that we're thinking about it. And really, I think by making it a focus, hoping we can make a dent in the health disparities that we've seen under COVID. Yeah. And this is really important because when we talk about health equity, which frankly, we talk about a lot on this podcast, we talk about unintended consequences. We talk about the fact that a lot of folks have really positive efforts, but unintentionally maybe influence, like in this case, the kind of provider that could actually experiment with new payment models. That said, I actually do think that there are some specific steps that the last two administrations have taken to create some intentional differences. If I think about the Obama era, it was all about participation. Let's get as many providers to experiment with new models as possible. And you know what? It's okay if they're not getting into downside risk or maybe not saving the federal government all that much money. I think the Trump administration took a different tactic and they really focused on performance. They wanted to target the providers, which were mostly physician groups that were actually taking on meaningful risk. So when it comes to this balance of participation on one end and performance on the other, where do you see the Biden era? In my view, and this is my opinion, the approach taken by the two previous administrations isn't really that different. Yes, there's some differences. The Obama administration focused on getting models out the door, proverbial, you know, spaghetti against the wall. And the Trump administration Mm -hmm. was focused on providers taking on risk. But I chalk that up to the fact that when the organization was in its infancy, you wanted that spaghetti on the wall. And then once we started getting results from the model test, it makes sense to focus on savings and, and results and risk. Now, if I was to describe the priorities of the Biden administration, it would be a focus on transformation. So taking what we know, all of the lessons learned, and figure out how to lay out a more clear path towards healthcare transformation, Um, focus on the patient experience in the healthcare system, a focus on equity, and then also really thinking more about working with commercial payers, purchasers, and states in this sort of multi-payer alignment. Um, Can we really expand the impact. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that word impact, actually, because you're, you're right. We can't, we can't do spaghetti at the wall forever. And if we know that a decade later, we need to make sure we're making a meaningful impact and not just for those that can kind of participate, back to our, our, our comments about, about equity, it sounds to me like, I'm going to use the term turning up the heat, is something that CMMI wants to do to make sure that we're getting the performance that's necessary. Yeah, I think that's one way to put it. Yeah. So we know we want to focus on what works. And one of the things that you acknowledged is that maybe we just tested way too many models, right? I think you said 50 models were tested. I want to say almost 30 are are actually being used right now. I think we can all agree that that isn't actually doing any favors for the sanity of providers. So are you planning on turning anything off? If we know we need to make an impact, what are you going to be deprioritizing? Well, you have that right. We're currently operating about 28 models. So, um, and we know that they create opposing incentives. They lead model participants to have to really think about how to manage model interactions. So, We want to increase participation in the models and we want to avoid the types of complexities that lead 
providers to have to manage shared savings. For example, who gets the savings if you're in more than one model? We're really thinking about focusing on a set of criteria for models in the future. Hmm. Thinking about factors like, does the model support or advance one or more of our strategic objectives? Driving accountable care, health equity, supporting innovation, addressing affordability, or this idea of partnership. We want to think about the potential impact. So really thinking about the potential for savings, for quality improvement, these seem kind of obvious, but also the potential for other payers to be partners in the effort. And then also, what's Hmm. the likelihood of being able to scale this model Hmm. across the country? So even by non-participants. And I know this is maybe a little inside baseball for inside CMS, but we want to make sure that we're working more closely with other parts of CMS, like the Center for Medicare and Hmm. the part of CMS that runs Medicaid. So asking them, are we asking the right questions? Are we going where innovation is needed in those programs? And this might increase the likelihood that the results of the models can be incorporated back into the program. So you've got this system of, I'm going to use the term grading, right? Looking at what we're offering and and figuring out, does it actually meet all of the aspirations of this administration, of this new leadership team? But are there kind of broad sweeping takes that we can interpret from that, right? I'm thinking about episodic payments, bundled payments, total cost of care models. When you look at those broader categories, do you have thoughts on which of those models get turned up or down if you know that 28 is too many? So accountable care, the notion of these total cost of care models are going to be really primary and center to the strategy. I think we're not, Hmm. in terms of how we think about the bundled payments and the episodes of care, they're still important, but we want them to be working in coordination or harmonized with total cost of care. And so we're asking ACOs, we're talking to providers and health systems out there, like how those programs can be better integrated. So what do ACOs need in terms of managing episodes of care? And some of what they're telling us is, can you focus on the sort of very high cost, low volume, things that primary care isn't as equipped to manage? So don't go into diabetes. We don't need a diabetes episode, but oncology is an area, some of the very high cost, very, I guess, complex cases where having a solution would be helpful and and complementary to what they're doing. I saw some comments from one of your colleagues, the the COO of CMMI, John Blum, and he had said in in a conference, something along the lines of, we're not going to be promoting models that have more risk just for the sake of having more risk. And in that comment, I actually saw a bunch of different interpretations come out, one of which was even in in modern healthcare, where some were saying, this means that CMMI is going to actually turn their focus away from downside risk. They're going to double down on coding, on risk adjustment. Now, that's obviously an interpretation. How do you want us to think about John's comments there? Well, thanks for bringing that up because I heard a lot of feedback after his comments. I think it was at the NACOS meeting. I think, you know, there's a difference Mm -hmm. of opinion about how important risk is in the sort of ability to transform the health system. There's a difference of opinion externally and there's a difference of opinion internally as well. And in my view, I think risk is an important element, but not everybody's ready to get there. So I think Hmm. CMMI's role is making sure that there's 
a place for those that want to go and bear more risk, that are ready, willing, and able, that are resourced and have the capacity and the tools to do so? And then how can we bring others along who haven't put a toe in that water and might not be ready? So I think for us, it's thinking about a continuum of options. So maybe not a one-size-fits-all. On the other hand, we have to reduce the complexity. So not 50 Mm -hmm. options either. So can we get it down to a manageable number of options? But I do think we need to have those options for those providers and and systems that want to bear the risk and then getting those in at the front end as well. You mentioned the word scale earlier. And I think that figuring out how to scale these models is actually perhaps even harder than figuring out which kinds of models to focus on. And when it comes to scale, the obvious question is, what's going to be mandatory? What are providers going to have to do? Where do you see mandatory models playing into your plan for achieving scale? Yeah, we've been giving this a lot of thought too. And 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 just like the question of risk, I think there's also you know, disagreement about whether we need mandatory models in order to drive success. And I think, again, in my view, mandatory models do have a place in our portfolio and we should consider them, but they need to be, as I mentioned, interacting with total cost of care approaches. So, you know, we've got two mandatory models that are moving through the regulatory process, the Mm -hmm. knee replacement and radiation oncology. You know, others, I think, you know, we're, we're debating and discussing and models internally. Some are telling us that if we don't have mandatory models, we're leaving out a whole swath of the health system that will just sit on the sidelines and decide they don't need to make any progress. And I think we don't want that. On the other hand, like I said, we're looking at how we can make sure that these approaches are harmonized and working in conjunction with total cost of care. So maybe that's the long term and we will need some models that look at mandatory participation in the short run. This gets to the question of participation too. Mm Mm-hmm. And making sure that we're incorporating safety net providers, rural providers, others that maybe haven't had the tools and resources and the capacity and making sure that they're, we're not forcing them into models where they're set up to fail, but we're also bringing them into the fold. So with voluntary models, the ones that participate are the ones that are going to be successful. We want to make sure that we're capturing a broader, broader swath, but we also want to make sure we can set them up for success. So because there's internal debate and because you have these other goals that you're trying to hit in the back end, is there a sense of the kinds of mandatory models or maybe the kinds of providers that you would want to target for those mandatory models? Is there is there a thought or a consensus on that? I think those issues are all under debate and it's kind of hard to target certain kinds of models because mandatory tends to look at geographic areas. So sure. uh, within a geographic area, they'll, they'll cover providers in that area. So, and by the way, you know, we also hear from some providers that, that they, you know, five years ago wouldn't have agreed and they would have opposed mandatory models. Now some of them are even welcoming it. Even, hmm. we've even heard from providers who now that we're moving from voluntary to mandatory are finding themselves outside of the service area and not part of the geography that's being tested. And they're asking us, can they come in on a voluntary basis because they liked being part of the models? So I think that's hmm. a change. So if you asked if we're making progress, that seems to me to be some progress. Well, let me reveal to you what providers tell me, right? So I've been at advisory board for for seven years speaking to mostly provider executives, and this has been a key topic over those, those last seven years. And if I think back to 2014, there was this kind of certainty 
that people spoke of when they thought about business model transformation. Risk was coming. Value-based care was happening. They were making changes to not just their business model, but to kind of the practicalities of operations. If I'm totally honest with you, Liz, seven years later, I almost feel like the folks that I've talked to have slowed down in their their thought process. They're still talking about value-based care, but they're talking about it as this far-off ambition, this thing that's going to happen in the future. They're happy to to bide their time or hang out at upside-only risk. And that's where it comes to how do we push these folks to not just get into alternative payment models, but to actually take on meaningful downside risk. Are there other ways maybe beyond the mandatory that you're thinking about to push providers to actually take financial accountability for these models? Yeah, Ray, what you're hearing is consistent with what we're hearing, and we think that's a problem. Between the pandemic, momentum towards value-based care has really slowed. Part of that is on us. We haven't been really clear about where we're heading, where Mm -hmm. the path we're taking, or where we're what's the ultimate destination. And I think that clarity has been missing. And so in the time that I have in this job, really, I, I think my job is twofold, to provide that clarity and lay out that strategy and that future direction, and then also help us regain that sense of inevitability. And I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And that that's why I think this notion of partnership and working with other payers and purchasers and states is really important. Even if you have a provider that is willing, ready, and able, and participating in some of our models, they're still missing other payers who are part of that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they've got one foot in in two boats. So even the ready, willing, and able partners could use that help from us to help push the other payers in the system to get on board and, and join this momentum and movement. How important is that, right? I, I'm thinking that Again, if I think about some of the more more pessimistic conversations that I have with providers, they're saying, you know, big change isn't going to happen until the private payers actually get on board. How are you seeing your efforts now as pushing private insurance to follow in the path of CMS? Or maybe how necessary is that for the kind of broader change that we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think Medicare has to be at the table. Like Medicare is a catalyst for a lot of the changes. So, yes. but we can't do it alone, like you said. And so we really need those those private payers. And it's and it's really interesting when we ask stakeholders why isn't more progress being made? The providers say, well, because the private payers aren't pushing us hard enough and they're not doing yeah. anything. But then you ask the payers and they say, well, half of our purchasers or half of our our purchasers aren't p- pushing us hard enough and Providers don't want to go there and they're not willing to take risks. So everybody sort of points a finger at everyone else. And that's, that's where right. laying out a strategy and a, and a vision and, and a path forward, I think, is really critical. And, you know, it's exactly why I want to do more of these podcasts and why I've been doing a lot of public speaking is just really trying to see if we can we can get that momentum restarted. And this, in my opinion, is is the hardest part about your job, is that you recognize that on the one hand, there is a very clear need for more momentum. We need to push providers into the deep end of downside risk. Otherwise, the private, private payers are still going to say, see, they're not interested in doing this and pointing that finger. But at the same time, you know that you need to give those same providers the tools to succeed, perhaps even new and more tools to succeed. Otherwise, we're going to get the same type of provider jumping in, and that's going to affect our equity goals. So the question I have is, is how? How do you balance those two things? And 
build that necessary momentum while also giving people the tools to actually succeed. We faced a lot of the same challenges. I worked on the Affordable Care Act. I was the chief health counsel in the Senate Finance Committee right. um, during the drafting of the ACA. We faced a similar challenge, like, but as soon as you can create that sense of inevitability, then people want to come on board. They want to be part of the solution. And so I, I feel like we're at a moment in time where we need to do that. We need to restart that engine on value-based care. And I think we can. And part of my job is just to serve as cheerleader. Yeah. There's so many healthcare issues out there right now. Congress is debating a reconciliation bill, you know, drug pricing, adding new benefits to Medicare, expanding coverage in states that haven't adopted Medicaid. There's so many issues on the table that somewhere value-based care gets lost. And it's my job, you know, with colleagues and and the rest of CMS leadership, but but my job is sort of singularly focused on these issues. And so that's why I'm spending a lot of time talking to as many people as I can. And, and yeah. by the way, I wouldn't say that I have a solution for all of this. We're sort of building the plane as we're flying it, um, which is also what we did during ACA as well. You didn't know where that <laughs> was going to end, but I think as long as you remain optimistic and positive and, and keep that cheerleader approach going, you're more likely to succeed. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. At the end of every episode, Ray says we are here to help, and we are. My name is Dia Partlow, and I want to tell you about Ask Advisory. It's a new service that connects you to an advisory board expert like me who can answer your questions. To reach our team, just visit ask.advisory.com and submit a request. It can be about a challenge you're facing, our most recent research, upcoming events, or anything else. It's free and easy. When you've got a tough question, don't go it alone. Visit ask.advisory.com today. You keep mentioning this sense of inevitability, getting back to this sense of inevitability that change is going to happen. What is the plan to create and kind of resurface that sense among among today's providers? Well, <laughs> I don't know that I have a clear answer on how to do that. I think it's going to require partnerships and work with other payers and purchasers and, and with states. Yeah, I don't <laughs> I don't know. This is not a great answer, but um, <laughs> so. I mean, maybe yeah. the answer is we don't know and we want to know from the providers what would what would create this sense of inevitability, especially since we kind of maybe had it and yeah. lost it a little bit. <laughs> to be totally honest, I think we might, you know, there's a, a time where we might need further legislation. There might need to be yeah. further legislative changes. I mean, if you're going to make fee-for-service as uncomfortable as possible while you're providing mm-hmm. these other alternatives. You know, as I look at, at the at the current statute and all the regulations, I'm not sure we can get there with our current framework. So uh, yeah. you need cheerleaders, you need partners, you need the systems and the providers on board. But at the end of the day, we might also need to look back and, and see what legislative changes help get us there. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And I actually think you're spot on with saying that we need to make fee-for-service as uncomfortable as possible because, gosh, especially now, if there's if there's one thing that providers want, it's, it's, it is a sense of comfort given everything that, that we've gone through in the last 18 months. And that will create some real stagnation in some of our efforts for transformation. So I think it's both how do you make these risk models more attractive? And how do you make the status quo fee for service as unattractive as possible? And you raise a good point. COVID shows you how dangerous pure fee for service is when oh, yeah. when volume drops so precipitously. And it was providers that were in this space in value-based care that had made those investments that did a better job, that were more resilient. And so I think some of us were hoping that that was enough of a push to sort of restart the engine, but I think more is probably needed. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of providers that are really struggling right now. I mean, COVID has been, I mean, you know, bless and many thanks to all the providers at the front lines of providing care in the middle of a pandemic. And so this is in some ways a bad time to be asking them to make this leap, but in sometimes maybe a good way, a good time, because um, yeah. you can see the value of that leap. If I give some credit to providers who I'm speaking to, if I think back to the start of the pandemic, there were a lot of folks that said that COVID-19 was going to completely accelerate the transition to alternative payment models because of exactly the reason that you pointed out. And I think that some of that momentum has naturally been lost, but that is a reason to double down now and say, hey, it wasn't that long ago that you saw how painful a a complete reliance on volumes was. We want to make it easier for you to get into some of these risk-based models as well. Yeah. Now, There's something that's in the back of my head during this whole conversation, which is that we know that the Medicare trust fund is slated to run out in 2026. And I know that value-based models were never going to fix our insolvency problem. In fact, I don't think that they were ever intended to necessarily do that. But are you thinking about adjusting value-based models to better support the trust fund? Well, some of us did think that value-based care could be part of the solution. And so the Medicare trust fund solvency date is now 2026, only five years away. Mm-hmm. It's better than some of us expected, but it still adds some urgency to the task before us. As I see it, we have five years to make progress on value-based care. We have to demonstrate that there are ways of generating savings and improving quality and outcomes. What happens if we don't succeed? Congress comes in with a budget bill that cuts payments across the board, whether you're a good provider or a bad provider. So in my mind, solvency is like a sort of Damocles. And having spent time in on Capitol Hill working on federal Medicare policy, I can assure you the industry would rather make progress on value-based care than face a budget bill, which, as you said, we might do anyways, but let's see if we can make progress in the next five years. But is five years enough time? I mean, we're talking about reflecting on the last decade of innovation, and we're having an honest conversation about what didn't work. So is, is five years even enough time to make progress? Yeah, it is a short window. And considering how long it takes now, I've learned how long it takes to get a model out the door. And it's, you know, it's like it's 18 months to two years uh, from the point of sort of conception to launch. So if you think about that and then the ability to make progress and 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 then evaluate the results, it is it is sort of a long runway. But, you know, there are things out there where we know we can make progress. So I don't want to give up and just throw up my hands mm-hmm. and say, you know, well, five years, we can't do anything. We might as well try. 
Which comes back to the kind of theme of this entire conversation, which is we need to figure out how to create the sense of inevitability and build this momentum among providers. And, and you've you know, blatantly said that your role is to communicate that and be the cheerleader for that. So I want to give you the chance to speak kind of directly to the providers and the provider leaders who are listening to this podcast. When it comes to the next five to 10 years of payment reform, when it comes to this push towards true business model transformation, what is the biggest thing that you want our listeners to hear from this conversation? And what do you want them to do differently? as a result of listening to this? I want to hear from them. And so we'll do our part to try to provide that clarity. Like I said, this is a plane that we're building as we're taking off. So we've put out a blog. We're hoping to put out a white paper. We're going to put out more on sort of what we're thinking for models over the next, you know, two to three years. I would love to hear from providers, from your audience, like what's worked, what hasn't, Mm -hmm. what does transformation mean to you? What has it been working with us? What would you change? Uh, what should we do differently? And, you know, your reaction to the strategy. And, and and I think having that dialogue and that open communication, if we got to a point where I could do site visits and and the team could go out and learn and, and, and visit providers directly and hear from them directly, that would be even better. But, but in the meantime, we, we're an open door and want to hear from folks. Yeah, I will say, you know, listeners take take Liz's word honestly respond to this episode and and Liz maybe as you do more over your tenure we'll have you back on to to talk about what the next phase of payment innovation means I would really appreciate that and then and then maybe as as that plane is flying we can tell you a little bit more about well <laughs> about what we're doing and what we're seeing I love it I will take that as a promise please do well Liz thanks so much for coming on radio advisory Thanks so much for having me. We'll be right back with a little bit of a debrief on my conversation with Liz, with my colleague and strategy expert, Ben Umansky. Ben, welcome back to Radio Advisory. Hey, it's been a while. It has been a while, but I'm glad we brought you in for for this conversation, which was which was a, a big one for us, and I think for you, who's been following what CMS has been doing since pre ACA. Oh yeah, th- th- this has been a a topic of of interest, of of learning and confusion and and emotions and all kinds of things for well over a decade at this point. So it, it's nice anytime we're talking about it, and especially to get the perspective from someone with as much influence and as much authority to push at least some things uh, in certain directions uh, as Liz. Well, I want to get into what you thought about our conversation, and I want to start with an area where advisory board has been has been thinking for a while. I mentioned that we have been thinking about this dichotomy between participation and performance, what the Obama era did, what the Trump era did, and what the heck it's going to mean for the Biden administration. What did you think about Liz's answer about participation versus performance? Sure. Well, one thing that I think is really important that she said, and and I want to make sure people catch this, that, that distinction, participation versus performance, is not a political shift. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the fact that, you know, the, the, the Trump era you know did things in a certain way. Let's remember that that was after years of data being piled up on these models. 
That's right. And so you were in a position at that stage, as we are again today, to be a little bit pickier and to say we're going to push here and not there uh, and, and, and to not be continuing to boil more spaghetti, to use her metaphor. Right. So I don't I don't want anyone to think that there is a, a kind of ideological split between the performance and the participation. But as far as where we can expect this administration to come down on, on that debate, I think you did hear a little bit of a hedge. And, and I think that's fine. Right. I mean, you heard a lot of talk about getting more kinds of providers in, in, in different geographies, different types of organizations to be participating in whatever model. But you heard about you know, the solvency of the trust fund and, and the short time frame mm-hmm. to make an impact. You heard the the self-critique, which I think at this point must be an obvious one, that not all of these models have actually generated savings and, and they start need to start doing that or else we shouldn't do it. Right. So it, it's not that they're, you have to choose between participation and performance, but they are potentially different goals to prioritize, I guess. Yeah. And I said this to Liz is that I, I appreciate the level of or the attempt at transparency in saying, here's what we know didn't work mm-hmm. over the last 10 years. But I'm not sure that Liz shared everything or perhaps knows everything about what's to come for the future. In your mind, what's the most important thing that Liz did not say? What did she leave out of this conversation that kind of perked your ears? I don't think that you know, things were intentionally withheld, if that's what you mean. No, no, but, no. But as far as perspectives that, that maybe still remain unclear, I, I thought there was a very telling set of, of conversations that, that you had about this sense of inevitability, right? This recognition yeah. that providers need to think they need to do this. Whatever mm-hmm. version of this we mean, providers have to feel, as they did a decade ago, that it's going to happen and better to get there quickly. Yeah. And what I didn't hear was a clear sense of how to recreate that idea. And I don't know if it can be done, right? To, yeah. to, to recreate a mood, to, to, it's almost in a nostalgic uh, sense. I, I don't know if that can be done. I thought it was telling that she recognized the importance and telling that there wasn't clarity on how to recreate. And it sounds like maybe there's even some disagreement internally on mm-hmm. what's the best path to reignite that sense of inevitability that, you know, you and I haven't seen in several years. You know, there was one bit that I I think is especially telling, and that was, I believe her phrase was, we need to make fee-for-service as uncomfortable as possible. Mm -hmm. My gosh. I mean, that's, you know, we think a lot about how these models are or are not, value-based models are attractive or not attractive. Are they easy to use? Do you want to sign up for them? Are they mandatory or not? All on the value-based side. Let's remember that it's a, a switch away from something else. Yeah. And the attractiveness of that world matters just as much for yeah. strategy. Now, Liz Fowler is not going to you know, have the same kind of authority that you know, Congress would, let's say. She's talking about setting a budget bill over the overall fee-for-service structure necessarily. Yeah. But it was interesting to see that acknowledgement that that side really does matter. Well, the other piece of acknowledgement that she gave that I appreciated was – that that's kind of outside of her personal purview is the acknowledgement that we need to get private payers on board, that there's only so much that can be done inside Medicare and Medicaid to push providers towards this. And that's maybe one of the reasons why things have stalled over the last 10 years. Yeah, stalled. Or, or I mean, th- this is the carousel, the catch-22, the, the chicken and the egg, you know, pick your metaphor. Yeah, pick your where, analogy. <laughs> where everybody says, you know, I'll do it when they do it and they won't do it until... Private payers are... You know, businesses, 
they're, they're not governments. They have different aims. Providers are businesses, even if they're not for profit, they have different aims. And the idea that because one side of the industry moves forward, if, if, if forward is even the, I mean, that's sort of editorializing, but, but, but moves toward uh, a value-based care, it's unclear why that has to catalyze somebody else to fall. Yeah. And I think the last decade has shown that Medicare's intent, that providers hedging attempts to, to lay a foundation are not enough in and of themselves to change private sector reimbursement. Yeah. Other things need to change. And that's probably a topic for another time. But that's that's a big lift for, for policy. It speaks to why creating that sense of inevitability is such a challenge because mm-hmm. it's going to mean getting over this barrier of every stakeholder in the industry is pointing fingers at one another or, let's be honest, have currently opposing incentives. And that is a reason why reigniting the sense of inevitability is, is going to be so hard for them. You know, one other thing that I thought was very interesting and, and, and to some extent encouraging, but, but maybe a little concerning as well, was this broadening of the goal set. Yeah. That I, right? That, that of course, we're concerned, you know, says, you know, Sam and I about saving money, right? That is to say for the government. But we're also concerned about giving people an on-ramp, which, as we know, back to participation versus performance, you know, means maybe you do things that aren't as, as hard-edged. Mm-hmm. We're also concerned about patient experience. We're concerned about equity. We're, yep. And so you, you wonder what is the most important goal? Especially given that one of the takeaways of the last 10 years is we thought too broadly about, in this case, model types, and we needed to scope things back. Yes. But now they're kind of saying we're thinking a little bit more broadly on these big picture goals. And I do wonder if you're right, if that's the best move. Well, I mean, to, to be sure, patient experience and health equity are hugely important aims. Of course. And, and, and policy should support those. But if the goal is to set a very clear direction, to, to leave no doubt about where Medicare is going and where providers had better follow. If that's the sort of emotional goal, you know, saying, well, maybe we'll measure success with this or that or whatever, it, it, it fuzzes that a little bit. And so I'll be watching very closely as we see this expected, you know, culling down of the models, the focus on certain things, you know, what kinds of stuff does get launched going forward, you know, to see if we can discern which goals truly matter most. And, and I don't think mm. that's clear from this conversation. I don't think it's clear from some of the other comments that have been made. I, one thing that I will say, this has been, I, I think, a, a fairly vocal administration in the first few months yeah. about where they want to see some things going. But that's not what's going to matter. What matters is what models actually get sustained, where they turn the screws, what stakeholders they cater to in the design. And we're not to that point yet. And given that there is still uncertainty... And given that, as Liz said, they are still building the ship as they are trying to sail it, what takeaway do you have for our listeners? I think, and I'll speak particularly to the provider side audience, although I think it probably applies to all, we're still going to need to sweat the small stuff. These models, conceptually, we can talk about total cost of care, we can talk about the migration to value, but they do specific things and the terms will matter. Yeah. And it seems likely that for years, at least, we're going to be in a world where you have a lot of options to participate in some things and not in others, to push forward, to lag back, to to work with some partners 
and not with others. And you're going to have to, if you're a strategist, if you're a financial leader, if you're anybody who has authority over this stuff, you've got to pay attention to what the actual terms of these models are, including on the private side. Because we can all say we like the concept of value. Yeah. Everyone says that. that. That's why we see this disconnect where, you know, payers say, oh, we want to do it and they don't. Providers say, well, we want to do it and they don't. Everyone agrees on value. Nobody agrees on the terms. Yeah. Well, Ben, thanks for coming back on Radio Advisory. Anytime. My biggest takeaway from what both Liz and Ben shared is that we have to get a lot more specific in what we're trying to achieve here. That is going to be essential for creating that inevitability towards alternative payment models. And it's going to be important if we're going to stop pointing fingers at different parts of the industry and make sure that we're actually making progress towards alternative payment models. This is not easy, but that's why we're here to help. Yeah, that's a really important question. You keep asking all these great questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. I know, I know. <laughs>